welcome everyone. Uh, good morning to some of you, and I suppose good evening to others. Uh, uh, the rest of us are somewhere in the middle, so you know, uh, a very good afternoon. Uh, the seminar that we are having today is the uh, launch seminar uh, of a conversation, a dialogue uh, between uh, scholars and activists uh, from the Middle East and from South Africa who have over a number of years been having conversations about our mutual intellectual and activist interests. Um, can I just check whether other people are able to admit or whether I should continue uh, speaking and admitting, okay? Um, uh, about our kind of mutual interests uh, related to the production of uh, subaltern alternative emancipatory histories. Uh, in, in context uh, in South Africa and the different parts of the Middle East that obviously have uh, different histories, but in our minds have important overlaps in our experiences uh, uh, over many years in different places to produce alternative counter-hegemonic histories. Um, and so while we recognize and acknowledge important differences in our various conversations, individually and collectively, um, we've realized that there are important uh, commonalities uh, related to, for example, uh, uh, erasures in the uh, you know, hegemonic histories, uh, for example, and perhaps particularly uh, erasure of the experiences, ideas, practices uh, of women uh, of uh, various marginalized groups, uh, be they, uh, you know, people affected by war and violence, children, uh, etc. And also perhaps uh, of different movements uh, that uh, may have had different ideas and politics to the dominant political organizations that emerged in the liberation struggles. Uh, we've also recognized commonalities in our experiences with official archives and how those official archives in different ways represent different powers, both in the colonial times and in the post-colonial times. Um, and certainly there are uh, commonalities in the way that the post-colonial states have in different ways uh, created new problems for the archives, be it uh, in uh, uh, authoritarian states where the military play an important role in overseeing and controlling archives uh, and therefore limiting access to the archives. Or uh, in the case of South Africa where the state of the archives also reflect a declining and increasingly, uh, uh, you know, a crisis-ridden state. Um, and uh, in that context, uh, important questions are raised about how scholars and activists can not only intervene uh, to try and uh, democratize the official archives, but also uh, produce new archives in a sense from the bottom up. Uh, uh, all of us have in different ways uh, as scholars and activists been involved in the collection of oral histories. And this, of course, has a long tradition as an important way of producing new, different subaltern histories, counter-hegemonic histories. And so, in a sense, uh, the, the dialogues that we've had have kind of, you know, uh, woven together different intellectual, methodological, 
broadly scholarly experiences and activist experiences that pivot sort of around the ideas of public history, uh, oral history, archives from below, and how those articulate what our common interest in emancipatory politics. And here I want to emphasize that it's uh, emancipatory politics, uh, not only in the historical sense, but also our relationship to current emancipatory politics in both our different contexts, but also uh, our, uh, our, our commitment to a kind of global uh, emancipatory politics. So we, 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 we met as a group uh, uh, in, I think, if I remember correctly, in, in May this year in Johannesburg, where these ideas, which I've just set out in very, very broad and general terms, uh, you know, uh, constituted the framework of our conversation. And I think that we were, uh, you know, convinced again of the importance of continuing the dialogue. Uh, the workshop that we had here was extremely productive. It was fantastic to have, you know, colleagues uh, from different parts of the Middle East who may be based uh, either in different in, in, in the Middle East or, or in universities in, in Europe, uh, but who come from and who remain committed to and interested in the Middle East. To have conversations with, you know, with colleagues uh, in South Africa, particularly in Johannesburg. Uh, and the productive conversations we had reinforced the commonalities in our interests and our approaches, albeit that there's still, you know, you know, uh, uh, some differences. Based on the on the workshop that we had, we agreed that it would be really productive and fundamentally important to continue having these conversations, um, uh, but to have them in a more organized way uh, and uh, hopefully in a more uh, but uh, organized and, and kind of ongoing way. And this has really led us to where we are today, which is the, uh, this seminar series, uh, which is focused on the idea of kind of archives, archives from below, the constitution of archives in movements, from movements, uh, and how these relate in broad terms to emancipatory politics. Um, we, are, we are planning to have a series of seminars, about five or six between now, November 2022, and September, October next year. And, it, and the uh, overarching idea is to, in these uh, seminars, uh, to bring into dialogue uh, scholars and activists uh, from South Africa uh, with scholars, activists, you know, from the Middle East in order to try and kind of, uh, you know, generate, uh, you know, new ideas, draw on our different experiences in order to kind of shape our ideas and practices as we go forward. Um, so I, I want to end off, first of all, by saying, uh, you know, big thanks to our various partners. Um, and because my French is absolutely non-existent, I'm not going to try and pronounce all the names, uh, but maybe Shaima, uh, because your French is infinitely better than mine, I'm going to leave that up to you. Uh, and then finally, uh, you know, just to thank our inaugural speakers, uh, Khalid, who's based in the US from Egypt, and of course, Dale McKinley, who's, uh, who is from South Africa. Uh, I think it's really wonderful uh, that the two of you have agreed uh, to inaugurate the seminar series. And I'm going to hand it over to Shaima, who is the co-convener of the seminar series, uh, to lead us uh, in, uh, in the seminar. Thanks very much.
thank you, Noor. Uh, good afternoon to everyone, and good morning, Khalid. I think you are the only one in the morning. Um, so I'm happy to introduce our first seminar uh, organized at the French Institute for Near East in partnership with the Fitz History Workshop, uh, Bij Zayt University, uh, Institute for Palestine Studies, the Arab and Muslim Worlds Observatory at the, um, the Free University of Brussels and uh, IFAS Research in South Africa. Uh, I want to welcome our guest speaker, uh, Khaled Fahmi and Dale McKinley, and our participants here at IFPO and online. Our first session today deals with um, the subject of documenting struggles in progress. Uh, the two presentations uh, touch on the experiences of building and creating archives about social movements, at, uh, such as the anti-privatization forum in South Africa, and extraordinary events such as the Egyptian Revolution of 25 uh, January 2011, why both uh, were still in the making. Uh, our speaker would correct me if I'm wrong, but we have two different experiences uh, regarding their outcomes. I mean, the process of uh, creating an archive. In one case, uh, the, the APF um, archives do exist and uh, are conserved. And in the other case, the, the process uh, of archiving uh, through the committee of documenting the 25 generation, uh, 25 January revolution had been put uh, on hold. Uh, these experiences are essential because um, they give us um, insights into the challenges and attempts to build through archives uh, counter-hegemonic and alternative uh, histories. Uh, therefore, some questions are at the core of our interest, or at least my interest, uh, uh, in the subject of documenting struggles uh, in progress. Among these questions, um, when uh, do we start documenting an ongoing struggle? Uh, how do we document? Um, who is legitimate to be uh, included in that archive? Uh, whose story uh, do we collect and document? For example, uh, if we consider the Egyptian revolution, when we collect the story of, uh, of this revolution, at least in its very early, first early days, do we collect the stories of the winner, and by that I mean the revolutionaries, or the defeated, the police and the state officials? Uh, do they have the same value for archiving uh, and building a counter-narrative? Um, which places or institution do we choose to uh, conserve uh, our archive? Does that choice change something in our documentation methods and the possibility that the archives could exist? Um, uh, in the case of the um, uh, APF, its archives are uh, conserved at the South African History Archives under uh, the forms of audiovisual collections, oral history, posters, and photographs, which is an independent uh, archive founded by anti-apartheid uh, activists in the late uh, 1980s. In the Egyptian case, uh, the Committee on Documenting the uh, 25th uh, January Revolution was affiliated with the Egyptian uh, National uh, Library and Archives, uh, an official institution. How uh, did these uh, affiliations uh, impact uh, the process of producing uh, archives? How and why do some experiences of archiving become successful 
while other cannot proceed. Uh, in other words, what impacts the political situation and nature of governing regimes have on our ability to document and conserve our history of uh, present struggles? And finally, how have archives become sites of uh, contention between state and non-state uh, actors? Uh, so we have the pleasure um, today to, of learning about experiences of documenting and archiving struggles <laughs> in South Africa <coughs> by two speakers who have the particularity of not uh, only being scholars, but who have been witnesses and uh, engaged within the struggles. Uh, our first speaker is uh, Khaled Fahmi, a well-known Egyptian historian and a fellow of the British Academy. He is currently a professor of North Africa in the Middle East at Tufts University. Uh, his research interests uh, lie in the social and cultural history of modern Egypt. Um, he published several books, among them Ota, Pasha, uh, Ota Pasha's Men, Muhammad Ali, His Army and the Making of Modern Egypt a book about the social history of uh, the Egyptian army in the first half of the 19th century. And more recently, um, in quest of justice, Islamic law and for snake medicine in modern Egypt, which is an award-winning book on the intersection of law and medicine in the 19th uh, century Egypt. Uh, since 2011, Khaled Fahmi has regularly been a local and uh, international media contributor. Uh, then we will listen to Dave McKinley, who is presently a research and education officer at the International Labor Research and Information Group based in Johannesburg, uh, which is a support organization dedicated to research, education, training, um, and the production of uh, popular materials uh, and the provision of reflective spaces for working class movements in South uh, and Southern Africa. Uh, Dale holds a PhD in International Political Economy and African Studies. Um, he is also, uh, so Dale has uh, so many hats. He's also a writer, lecturer, uh, regular public speaker, contributor and commenter in the media. Uh, he's uh, also a long time um, political activist involved in social movements, community and liberation organizations and struggle. He published several books, including South Africa, uh, corporatized liberation, the ANC in power, and um, the 60 years of the Freedom Charter, no cause to celebrate for the working class. Um, so, Khaled, the floor is yours. Uh, and uh, you should speak about 15, 20 minutes each. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Shaima, and thanks for the organizers. Um, and thanks everybody for attending this uh, session. I'm very much looking forward to it. Um, I think uh, the order of speakers uh, is very well thought of because my story is a story of failure. Uh, as Shaima hinted, it's a story of, an of a documentation project that didn't take place. Um, and I'm looking forward very much to hear um, Dale's experience from South Africa which I hope will be a bit more positive than mine. Um, uh, so I would like to start by explaining the conditions that led me, um, a historian, um, to um, head a, a national committee for documenting the Egyptian revolution uh, of 2011, soon after the um, eruption of this revolution. 
Um, I became the head of the committee. I don't know exactly the date, but it was um, in February 2011. So um, the revolution happened on 25th of January. So a few weeks really after it happened. The story goes as follows. Um, I'm a social historian. I have acquired my expertise as a social historian in that archives itself, in the National Archives of Egypt, which is a, an interesting and old venerable institution founded officially in um, the aftermath of the 1952 revolution. But the collection itself was the royal collection, uh, the collection of King Fuad uh, founded, the collection was founded in the 1930s. <clears throat> anyway, I started doing my research on the social history of the Egyptian army in the first half of the 19th century. And I did this research in the late 80s and early 90s. And over the years, I've acquired a quite <clears throat> a considerable amount of expertise using the archives. And um, what I was actually interested in is, is um, uh, as Shay mentioned, um, I wasn't interested in writing a history of a military history of the army. I was interested in writing the social history, the experience and daily experiences of the soldiers rather than the generals of that army. Um, and of the different acts of subversion and resistance to this draconian um, institution of coercion, um, most notably uh, the acts of desertion from uh, the army. So that was um, uh, my first project and I followed it with another project that resulted in my latest book, which is In Quest of Justice, in which I used police records. Over the years, I've come to realize how rich the Egyptian archives are. Uh, they're rich, uh, they're of course state archives. They are the, the, the archives of the official institutions of the state, of the police, um, of the army, of the bureaucracy, of the courts. But um, my challenge was to try and tease out from these official records a voice of the downtrodden, the marginal, uh, the destitute and the poor. Um, and uh, you are the better judge of whether I succeeded in doing so or not. But I always sense that there is something very rich. And the archives is huge. It's, uh, I don't know exactly how, I mean, no one knows how, how many uh, kilometers of shelf uh, they occupy, but it's especially rich in the 19th century, 19th and 20th century. As rich as the archives are, uh, they're actually limited um, access. Um, so officially and legally, uh, this is a research institution open for the public, but practically to have access to it, you have to have a security permit. And the security permit is a security on your person and on the topic. So the result of these very, very tight security measures is that only a handful of researchers are allowed in. Uh, the archives have millions and millions of documents and the average number of visitors per day is less than 10. Um, so um, I've always bemoaned this, uh, this fact. So, so that is my background about how I came to be involved in it. Uh, when the revolution happened, I was plunging in literally from the first day, from the 25th of January, I was in Tahrir. Um, and as I was saying, you know, over these years, more than 15 years, people in the archives knew me. They knew me as a researcher. But then suddenly they also 
started realizing that I'm active in the revolution. So soon after uh, 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 Mubarak stepped down, the head of the archives, uh, Dr. Sabr Arab, who himself is a historian, and he became a friend of mine over the years, um, approached me and he said, look, we're witnessing a historic event and we want to document it. And what better place to document the revolution that is happening than us? And who better person to do so than you? When I realized the enormity of the problem, I hesitated for a couple of days. My friends urged me to accept. So I accepted on two conditions. Um, one is that I have complete freedom to compose the committee that would work with me to um, uh, start documenting the revolution. And secondly, that whatever we do, uh, would be immediately accessible to everybody online with no security permits, with no screening, with no uh, security walls. He approved this and a decree was issued officially by the Minister of Culture, who was a friend of ours, himself also a historian, and Ahmed Abourezi, to, um, to form the committee. I started forming the committee, I approached some academics, some IT people, some lawyers, and we started thinking about how to think about documenting this revolution. Um, Shaima already alluded to some of the questions um, that we immediately encountered. What is it that we collect? Um, I was interested in my own experience. I wanted to imagine myself or someone like me coming 40, 50, 100 years from now and having at their disposal, a raw material that would allow them to weave together stories about the practice of revolution, what actually happened on the ground, uh, who participated and why, uh, the variations of revolutionary practice throughout the city of Cairo, but also throughout the country. Um, and um, I, um, that was the big mandate, which is, to collect oral history. In other words, there are participants who are still alive, obviously. Uh, they just came back from the streets and we want to document their experiences, we wanted to um, record uh, their voices. Um, and, um, and, oh, and then also many other things, official pronouncements, government newspapers, legal decrees, uh, the different decrees that were being issued by the different governments that are coming and going, um, and, um, so, and, and so on and so forth. So when we uh, composed the committee, that was the biggest first problem that we encountered. What is it that we collect? Um, uh, do we also collect the uh, testimonies of police officers, of doctors, of um, uh, public officials or only of those revolutionaries. And of course, we answered that we need everything that we can collect, not only uh, the, the voices of the revolutionaries. Um, and, uh, but, but we had another problem, which is what is it that we are actually documenting? What is this thing called revolution? When did it actually stop? Uh, and when did it start? Did it start on the 25th of January or did it start in December when Ben Ali fled from Tunisia? Or did it start much earlier with the precursors of the <clears throat> uh, 
uh, um, <clears throat> social uh, mobilization, with the anti-Iraq uh, war demonstrations, with the war with the demonstrations in solidarity with the Palestinian Intifada. I mean, that was, of course, a conceptual slash theoretical question of what constituted the evolution. When do we actually start marking its beginning? And then when, when do we start when it ended? We supposedly, when, when the committee was formed, we thought the revolution ended, believe it or not. We thought that with Mubarak stepping down on the 11th of uh, February, 2011, um, we now have a new regime. And of course, the longer we worked on the committee, um, the longer we, the, the clearer we realized that the revolution of course hadn't um, ended. Then we had many, many problems, technical issues about how do we actually record? I mean, we are appointed to this committee. I mean, we became members of this committee with no budget whatsoever. Um, and it was all volunteer work. So the first thing we did is we had a session. We decided to have a call for volunteers to come and be trained on how to do oral history and how to record them. We raised money. We managed to get high resolution um, uh, recorders. So that issue was resolved. And the training of uh, the, uh, the, 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 the recorders, those who would conduct oral history, um, was, um, was very interesting. And it is a precursor of the main point I want to make, um, which is we made this call in the newspapers and on social media. We had um, maybe 100 volunteers who came to the National Archives answering this call in order to start registering for a training session. For me, that was itself a revolutionary act. For many, many years, I was calling for people to actually go to the National Archives. But physically, it's impossible to enter the building. So for me to find 100 people, revolutionaries, young, full of talent and energy and enthusiasm, going to the Archives building, they haven't been to the stacks or even to the reading room. But still, just to be inside the building for me was like, this was my sinister uh, plan. It was a Trojan horse kind of um, uh, plan to allow people in, draw them in, and tell them, this is your archives. Regardless of how this project ends, you have to own it. You have to push for uh, your right to have access to what uh, is contained there. We started the record, um, uh, training these um, archivists um, on how to record. Um, and then, of course, the question of how to index and tag. And then the big technical IT question of how and where to store what we are uh, we're collecting. Um, now, in none of this, the archives itself, the National Archives itself, was of any help. Uh, first, the archives doesn't have a budget. Second, believe it or not, the, archive, the archives doesn't have archivists. They don't have trained archivists. They have custodians of collections uh, reflecting the overall security mentality. So they actually do not know how to index even government newspapers, even government material that they are supposedly receiving every, every uh, few 
years, every few years, some ministry decides to dump the material, the old material onto the archives. And national archives don't know, they don't have the expertise to, to, to catalog what they have. Let alone to deal with something that became um, the stumbling uh, uh, block, which is the following. Many of those people that we approached to actually record their experiences said, okay, uh, we trust you, Khaled, because we know <clears throat> who you are, we know your colleagues, um, but you're working under the auspices of the National Archives, which is part of the Ministry of Culture, which is part of the regime that actually has not fallen. We also know that the security services control everything in Egypt, including the National Archives. Now, we are giving you our, uh, entrusting you with our testimony of what we did. Well, we did what can be considered to be criminal acts. We approached police stations and we set them on fire um, and many other things. What guarantees can you give us that whatever we do will not be used against us? either now or in the future. Um, can you, and so we started thinking about anonymity and security and um, how to protect the identity of the witnesses, those who entrust us with their testimony. And, um, and, and that became a technical question because, okay, now we can do this, uh, but technically how will it be, um, yeah, we, we're going to give this material to the National Archives. Um, suppose that the witness says, um, I want my testimony to be uh, kept uh, anonymous or secret or, um, or behind the wall for 10 years. What guarantees that in 10 years, what mechanism, the archives does not have a mechanism to uh, release documents. Uh, they, they actually don't have this expertise whatsoever. Um, nor the technical infrastructure to make this possible. More importantly, the actual contract uh, that we, I mean, not contract, but agreement that we want to have with the witness, um, with any of these provisors to protect the identity and, um, of the witness, um, was objected to by the legal experts, um, uh, legal advisors to the National Archives. They would not um, um, agree on us putting any uh, legal language uh, that would be binding between the National Archives, which is really what we're working with, and the witness. Um, so the witnesses then would said, well, we trust you, but we don't trust the National Archives. We don't trust the Ministry of Culture. We don't trust the government. Um, and so we cannot really allow you to have our testimony. Um, secondly, we ourselves, members of the committee, we actually, even us, had difficulty meeting on the premises. Um, they would not allow us in occasionally until finally they issued us special ID cards. Um, and thirdly, we also were, you know, we're volunteers, we have jobs, but we're also active in the revolution. And as I'm trying to say, the revolution not only had not succeeded, but actually had not ended. I mean, we are constantly 
going on the streets, demonstrating, participating in sit-ins, writing op-eds, being members of different committees. We're active in the revolution that is ongoing, is physically very dangerous, and emotionally enormously depleting on our um, mental and emotional resources. Um, so, and in addition, we have no protection. We have no protection because ultimately we are documenting a revolution against the regime that is paradoxically hiring us and authorizing us to do this uh, project. So it is fear for the security of the witnesses, fear about our own safety, um, and uh, lack of resources, and ultimately realizing that there is a fundamental um, contradiction between our revolutionary act of documenting a revolution and the fact that the people who are uh, hiring us to do, not hiring us, but mandating us to do this, are the very same people against whom we are participating in the revolution. Um, so uh, that contradiction was not immediately clear in the beginning. We knew about it, but we thought we were full of enthusiasm in the beginning weeks. We thought that it's only a matter of time until we finally own the National Archives, own the Ministry of Culture, kick out the, uh, the security agencies from uh, this uh, and, and make it really an institution that is open for the public. I also was a member of many committees, the aims of which were to draft new Freedom of Information Act and new uh, archives law and archive and, uh, a, a new act for, for uh, national archives. Both these projects, of course, also failed. Um, and um, I will end just by saying that, you know, it's not an accident that, of course, I'm now in Boston and I'm not in Egypt. Um, and, uh, and many of my friends are um, in exile or barred from leaving or in prison, um, including, of course, Ali um, Abfateh. Last, um, uh, last year was, um, I went to Greece um, to uh, participate in an academic conference commemorating the 200th anniversary of the Greek Revolution of 1821. And I went to the National Museum in Athens, which had a huge exhibition on the history of the Greek Revolution. I was interested in that revolution because I worked on it, uh, because Mohammed Ali's army went to that country to suppress that revolution of 1821. But I also went to that exhibition to see how it was formed. And I paid close attention to the metadata of the artifacts. And I realized that, the, that that collection was founded 50 or 60 years um, after the revolution had erupted in the 1860s, 1870s, when the revolution not only had succeeded, but obviously had been consolidated and the modern state of Greece was founded. Um, that is why we have a museum of the, uh, of the Greek revolution. In our case, the revolution 
had completely failed um, and the counter-revolution had completely and unambiguously succeeded. Um, and at heart is the question of national uh, memory. And that current regime is very, very keen to eradicate all references and traces that ever there was a revolution back in 2011. Um, news uh, websites are uh, banned and 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 uh, uh, completely eradicated and um, suspended and confiscated and wiped out. Uh, of course, all testimonies are um, uh, no no testimonies were collected, and any attempt now to uh, document the revolution is. Um, very, very dangerous. And that is why most of the attempts to document the revolution, and there are many of them now, individual, um, grassroots, um, they all happen um, in exile. Um, it's very difficult to do such an activity in Egypt. Um, I'm aware of more than one such um, uh, attempt. Whether or not they will succeed is a question of time. Um, thank you for sharing the boss's story. I um, actually I didn't know all the the challenges. I didn't know all of this, but uh, maybe you, I would like you uh, in the question uh, maybe come back to when actually it stopped the challenges the moment when it stopped. Uh, but because also you mentioned Ali Abdel Fattah, maybe for uh, those who uh, don't know him, he's a well-known political activist. Uh, is, he is one of the thousands of Egyptian prisoners, um, and he's currently in uh, on hunger strike um, since uh, many months. Uh, he also stopped drinking water like a week ago. Um, so uh, just um, to introduce you one of of the many situations that we uh, have currently in Egypt. Um, so um, today we made you co-hosts. Yes, thank you. Uh, is my voice coming through okay? Yes, Can you uh, hear me you, fine? Okay. You loud and clear. Excellent. Thanks. Thanks. I just wanted to make sure. Uh, thank you so much for the opportunity uh, to give this presentation. Um, it uh, when Noor uh, contacted me to ask this, I was quite excited because uh, it has been quite a long time uh, in South Africa. I think, as Noor will uh, testify, um, amongst a lot of the uh, society, archives are not taken very seriously. Um, and one of the challenges in particular, which uh, foregrounded the archival collection that I was responsible for with regards to the anti-privatization forum, uh, was that uh, in the post-apartheid period in South Africa, uh, there are hardly any archival collections of any social movements, of any people's movements, community organizations, uh, we are known as a country of the protest capital of the world, uh, where there are more protests and uprisings and other things, uh, and yet 
the only documentation of this outside of certain areas of academia and certain scholars, such as the history workshop at Witz and others, uh, is very, very thin. Um, and particularly with regards to the repository of materials uh, that have been produced, a rich, rich, rich collection of materials over years that have simply been lost to history, to archives, to research, simply because there was no attempt to try to collect them, uh, to try to pull them together. And the other challenge was that there were hardly any resources available, uh, institutional resources and others outside again of small sections of academia. Um, and that's why when I was asked to do this and I called my presentation, the APF archive, a full panorama archive, because uh, as I will show, um, I, it's it's a it comes as in mentioned in terms of my bio. It's it's not a an archive that's simply collected uh, in terms of, of for academic research, but it's an activist archive first and foremost uh, from from both the inside as well as out. I'm going to uh, just share my screen. Um, so if you can if, tell me if you can see this. Um, so this we called I, I call this this the, the archive transitions child anti-privatization form is a product of of the the post-apartheid transition and uh the the background to this uh archival project was a previous uh archival and oral history project that i had done with the south african history archive called forgotten voices in the present post-1990 for all histories from three poor communities which were trying to get a sense of what the experiences of people were in the post-1994 period. And of course, the challenge in, in relation to trying to bring together a collection, a, a, an archival collection of a social movement like the anti-privatization forum, which was predominantly made up of people from very poor communities, informal settlements, townships. Uh, it's not, it was not an NGO in the classic sense of the term. It did have an intellectual activist base to it outside of those communities, but fundamentally its membership and its activities revolved around a range of poor communities, predominantly in and around Johannesburg and in the Hauteng province, which is here in um, also constituting uh, uh, Pretoria, uh, which is just down the road from Johannesburg um, and the most populated area in South Africa. Um, at the at the time that the APF was was uh, at its um, uh, operating at its uh, highest points, uh, the, the APF consisted of about 40 different community and organizational affiliates and political organizations and individual activists. At one point, there were union members as well, uh, unions that were part of the APF. There were political groups. Uh, there were student organizations from the university. So it was a a, a movement that. Um, was quite uh, multifaceted, but predominantly, and its majority membership was from poor working class communities. And that made it very difficult in the context of collecting materials. Um, but I'll talk about that and why we decided to combine a, a, a material archive with a oral history archive at the same time to try to basically make this a much deeper and richer uh, collection of, of, of a history or telling of a history uh, from the oral history side of it and from what people uh, would be able to uh, share from their own experiences and their own uh, struggles, uh, both as part of the APF and their own or, uh, community organizations. Um, 
just to say that I, as far as I am aware, and Noor might be able to correct me, but uh, as far as I'm aware, outside of the Treatment Action Campaign, which was another social movement that many of you know about, HIV AIDS movement in South Africa, I am not aware of any other social movement in this country that has put together or there, the, where there is any formal archive of its organizational history, its political history, its struggles, um, and uh, anything else. So this is, uh, in some ways, not absolutely unique, but it's certainly one of the very few uh, that has been there. And we'll talk about the importance of that, I think, very briefly at the end. Um, and I think the, the, the key here, and as I say here, that the importance is the history from below. Uh, this, this is clearly, um, in South Africa in particular, uh, our histories, uh, if you just take a look at the textbooks that are uh, uh, taught the histories in school and even the more contemporary uh, forms of history, uh, they are taught from above. They're taught from the, the, the positions of the ruling uh, elites, uh, the ruling class, the ruling party, um, and uh, predominantly from those that have uh, been at the forefront of uh, you know, the mainstream uh, uh, making of history, certainly not from the, 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 uh, the grassroots organizations, from the, the, the community organizations that were part of the APF. So that was the fundamental reason also to try to not just put this archive together as a record uh, that would serve uh, for future generations and lessons that could be drawn, a, a rich, rich history of struggle, but also to contest the dominant narratives uh, that have uh, particularly around social movements and others in the post-1994 period as well. Um, <coughs> excuse me. So uh, that, that's the sort of basic background to the, to the project. Now, just to look at quickly the project purpose. So there are four main practical components to this project. As you can see there, one was to collect a formal electronic and hard copy archive of all available material from within the APF, its community affiliates, as well as material on the APF from outside the movement. So for example, uh, when, when it began to put this together with some colleagues, we found when we uh, put the, the whole archive uh, eventually together, I think there were at least 10 PhDs and about 15 master's degrees uh, dissertations that had been written on the APF, uh, which we had not even been aware of uh, from across the world, and including obviously media articles, uh, journal papers, uh, so the, all the academic and research literature, those from the activists themselves, everything that had been collected within the APF, and we'll talk about breaking down that material as well. So it was, a, it was literally every single piece of material, including, by the way, um, material as in paraphernalia. So it wasn't just written material, all the t-shirts, all the posters, all of the uh, artwork, um, anything that was produced uh, electronically, for example, uh, invitations to, you know, to, to meetings, uh, things, all these kinds of things, minutes of meetings, every single aspect of the organization uh, was collected. So the, the principle here in the collection of this archive was full panorama warts and all, everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So not trying to selectively create a perception of a movement that was strong and anti-capitalist and moving in a positive direction. But as you'll see, when I talk about a little bit about some of the content of what was uh, revealed in this archive, some of the really, really difficult uh, things, for example, just to give you one example, uh, in 2008, when three of the organizers of the APF 
were expelled as a result of a gang rape case. And this was something that uh, was a, a real challenge to the archive and to the principle of openness, because many, many comrades and many activists wanted to bury this. And most movements do. They try to treat their internal organizational and personal things as something that the public should not see, and particularly when it involves something such as rape. Our perspective and the APF's perspective collectively was this must be brought to the surface and must be owned and, and must be told in its full totality. And that's exactly what happened in this archive as well as within the others. So that's just an example of, <coughs> excuse me, of how uh, it wasn't simply just the collection of materials to create a certain picture of, a, of a, an organization uh, positively, but also negatively, and also um, in all those in between. Secondly, to produce a formally archived collection of all histories in both audio and written formats. And this was important uh, because, as you know, in the context of the membership of the APF and many others who are not going to be able to access the archive, uh, in that is housed at, at now Vitz University or at the South African History Archives formally, the oral side of that is very important. People being able to listen uh, to these archives. And this was, uh, we, we provided uh, the oral transcripts and the oral, uh, the audiovisual transcripts of all of these to every single activist member who wanted them. Um, and we provided it on also on a disc and made that publicly available as well to many, many people uh, that otherwise might not have been able to access the official archive once it was uh, done. And that oral history was produced from and, and was made from selected APF and associated community affiliate leaders, activists and members. In other words, those who made up the organization, those who were the leaders, those who were involved. Thirdly, to produce a brief written history of the APF, consisting of a critically informed paper, which I wrote based upon this collected archive, along with selected excerpts from the oral histories recorded so that there was some kind of summary uh, that was put together that provided a much more accessible and, and uh, a short, uh, shorter version uh, for those that would, would not be able to access the full archive. And then finally, uh, which was su a supplementary uh, in, in the context of what we wanted to do was to create a range of access to information requests uh, from government and the private sector around some of the issues that came up in the archive. And that was separate after the archive was done. Um, so this project really provided the first comprehensive multi-form history of one of South Africa's key post-1994 social movements. Um, and it was a positive contribution for researchers, activists, community residents, academics, politicians, government officials, and so forth. I do not have the statistics at hand uh, to indicate who has used this uh, uh, archive and accessed it, but I do know that it has been widely accessed uh, from globally as well as otherwise, because not only is it a physical archive, it's an electronic archive at the same time, thanks to the, South, the incredible work that was done by the South African History Archives in putting this all together over a three-year period uh, that it took uh, to, to take this together. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I'm not going to, I don't have the time to go through the entire uh, process of the project scope, but I just wanted to give you a taste of how deep we went in terms of, for example, the oral histories. And in this first paragraph here, you see that when we interviewed people and, and we did this in an open and transparent manner, we tried to cover the following areas. We covered personal issues, 
We covered movement and community organizational histories. We had covered issues of basic demands and issues that engaged, uh, that emerged, organizational strategy and tactics, responses from the state and government, relations with political parties and other social movements, the levels and, cont and content of political and social activism, key problems, challenges, failures, successes, both organizationally and politically. And underlying these were the larger areas of the ways in which the history and development of the anti-privatization forum and its community affiliates had been shaped by the dominant macro post-1994 political economy of South Africa. Uh, in other words, the bigger questions in relation to neoliberalism, privatization, and other kinds of policies that had fundamentally impacted on people's lives and their struggles. Um, and so that, that it, was, it was an incredible rich, it was an incredibly, some of the interviews lasted up to six hours. Um, others were an hour or two, but um, in many cases, people had a lot to say, as you might imagine. Um, and then of course, the material archive that I mentioned, uh, which was, is incredibly rich, um, including by the way, an, a really good, you know, uh, I think South Africans in particular, the history from the 1970s and 80s and the anti-apartheid movement, there are amazing collections of paraphernalia, of t-shirts, of posters. And it's very interesting to look at some of those and then compare them to the 1970s and 80s and other archival and how the political uh, messaging and the kind of, of, of things that were being uh, you know, publicly uh, sort of framed in the context of the struggle and how people saw that. It's a fascinating historical comparative analysis as well that one can make in the context of the overall trajectory of anti-systemic struggle um, in South Africa over a period of 30 or 40 years with which the APF represents a slice in the post-1994 period. Um, so in a nutshell, that's the archive. Um, and uh, there's many, many more things I could say about this, but I just, I, I think the most, one of the most important things, and I'm just going to stop sharing my screen now. I think one of the most important things uh, that I can say in, in, in the experience of, of this archive, <coughs> excuse me, is that uh, it really, I, I have, um, as a scholar, as an activist, uh, as someone who has paid a lot of attention to other struggles and, and tried to uh, learn as much as possible about other histories um, of movements, whether that's in South America, the Middle East, uh, Latin America, I mean, and uh, Asia as well, or North the North America and, and Europe uh, to a lesser extent, but in the global South, um, it is so, so important, uh, I think, for us to um, have a principled uh, foundation to the way in which we approach archival collections in the context of everything has to be open and transparent. And oftentimes I have found it very difficult to accept that those who profess the most radical politics, who profess the most revolutionary politics, do not practice it internally uh, and, and do not apply it to themselves and their own organizational politics oftentimes. And I think we have to take that very, very seriously in the context of archival uh, repositories and the way in which we go about uh, doing things so that people who are historians, people who are researchers, other activists who want to learn lessons, who want to see, can see everything as I said, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and to be able to, to uh, for that to be able to, I think that's a much, much more powerful archive. It's a much more powerful story 
even if it's a difficult one to collect and to tell. Um, and with that, I would again thank you for the opportunity uh, for this, and I hope that that has been uh, useful and informative. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you so much, Dave. Uh, it's fascinating how you did this uh, work. Uh, and um, actually, I, I would have two questions, but I would leave the, the everyone to ask the question. But I was wondering, according to what Herod was saying, the resources uh, that I, I mentioned, a lot of people worked uh, in this project also, uh, but I was um, wondering, but maybe you said it somewhere and I didn't hear it well, uh, but when uh, exactly did you start to make this archive? Is it once the, pro the, the movement uh, ended or it was in the process of uh, at the same moment as the, 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 the social movements was in, uh, was present. And so uh, I don't know if you have questions online here. Yeah, uh, uh, I will have two questions, uh, one for uh, Khaled and uh, one for Dave. Uh, Khaled, you, you mentioned that you started to train uh, young, school, uh, young revolutionary people or uh, other activists who were able to enter uh, the, uh, the archive. Did you have any uh, outcomes from these trainings? Those, those, those people started to work on, uh, on the revolution, on other things? or the training was stopped due to, to the event? Were there more in the revolution rather than in the training and those kinds of things? And did they were able to collect things and to go outside with them, or they were not able to collect because of the, of the events? And then you mentioned many times, uh, we collect or we organized. And I was just wondering because you did not uh, give us insight how does it work? Was it a committee from the movements who decided to collect the archive? Was it a committee from outside of the movement? Or what was the relations between those who were organizing the archive, the movement, and, uh, for example, Saha afterwards? Shall I answer now or shall I? I think maybe we should take a, a round of questions and. There is a lot of hands online. Um, so so I think that the, I think it's, it's uh, in order, Matsudiso, Jian, and then uh, myself. So Matsudiso. Hi, everyone. Hi. Uh, yeah, thank you so much um, for the wonderful presentations and I think I have two questions for Khaled and then one for um, Dale. And my first for Khaled is that, first, I think it's, it's really commendable that you have kind of had to navigate all these security or national strictures um, and still manage to put together something of an archive of this revolution. I think that's very commendable. But one of my, my first question is first, whether, um, in your process of archiving this revolution, there were any mechanisms 
indexing or cataloging the revolution that could kind of camouflage themselves within the archival institution such that there were details or aspects of the revolution that would appear in the archive but not necessarily be um, immediately accessible, immediately able to be flagged by whomever you were um, kind of uh, afraid or, or, or uh, yeah, afraid of, of being flagged by. And then the second is whether you considered any alternative or parallel archives. So as you were archiving for the National Archives, did you consider um, making a collection that would be housed or would have custodians outside of the government's um, strictures and restrictions? And if, if so, what did that look like? So was there an informal archive that you put together um, that may be accessible now or you know, in, in later years? Um, and then for Dale, I think my question was that you you mentioned how there were a number of academic um, papers or a lot of masters and, and PhD research that was done around um, this anti-privatization forum uh, that you were unaware of. So what was it about uh, the organizational politics that, um, Okay, well, I think I'll, I'll have to phrase this a different way. So when you read through some of the papers, were there aspects of these research um, papers and dissertations that um, had elements of erasure or elements of kind of the toning of the papers that felt like um, there was some kind of um, restriction in the way that the experience of the movement was was expressed and how did you navigate that or how do you plan to navigate that so how do you plan on navigating some of the con the constraints the academic i suppose or, or organizational constraints that these um academics experienced in writing their their work i i hope that that these <laughs> these questions make sense <laughs> but um thank you very much for the presentations and they were really they were really insightful and i i hope that yeah i hope that these questions are are enriching or yeah enriching in some way thank you Noor? yeah uh, well, thank you both, because here we have two stories, a story of a failure, and if we have to say, we can have a story of a success in South Africa. But both of them made me think of, uh, and we are in a comparative uh, study case, uh, of Tunisia and um, uh, the Truth and Dignity Commission uh, that was uh, built after the revolution by Siham Ben Sedrin mainly and others where they collected testimonies of people who were uh, abused by the authoritarian regimes of Bourguiba and uh, Zinedine Ben Ali. And then they, it was very mediatized. It was on the television. And uh, uh, in 2019, the, the, the work of uh, IVD, Instance Verité et Dignité, stopped. And uh, there was a little bit issues afterwards because we have also uh, not as and in Egypt, a return of authoritarianism, but some forms of, of, of um, return of something. 
actually, I would like to link both of your uh, papers and, and maybe think uh, a little bit generally on uh, the question of archives and transi justice, transition justice. Like in, 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 uh, in Tunisia, they used all those testimonies to give compensation and, and uh, indemnities for the people who were uh, um, victims of uh, authoritarian regimes and, and victims. So do you think in South Africa, uh, the archives that you are collecting could uh, serve uh, a justice, a transition justice. And for Egypt, could we imagine in Egypt something like that? Those, those are my questions. Thank you. Uh, thanks, uh, Gian. Uh, Shaima, I, uh, the, a, a couple of us, it's, it's me and Sadia, uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll take direction from you as to whether you want us to continue or whether you want to speak with some response now. Yeah, maybe we should let them uh, respond and then uh, we take your question and uh, Sadia also. So uh, Khaled and then uh, Adendale. Okay, <clears throat> thank you for these questions. Um, I'll try and deal with them in the order in which they were posed. I will start with a question about the volunteers and what happened to them and uh, um, and who they were. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> so the whole idea was that this was a process that we realized from the very beginning that was going to take time and that this is something that will be um, cumulative. The expertise that we acquire uh, will be cumulative. And we also wanted to document what we were doing so that whatever we were doing will be transparent immediately, but also afterwards. Uh, so interestingly, we would meet as a committee in the National Archives. Uh, there was an interesting political tension there because I'm the head of the committee, but the head of the National Archives is a member of the committee. So he works under me, so to speak. But of course, we were like in this revolutionary spirit, there's no really hierarchy, but most interestingly, there was someone taking minutes constantly. And he's a, a, um, a part of the, um, uh, the administration of the archives. I mean, he is someone inside who believed in what we were doing. Um, so anyway, what we wanted to do was to train um, those volunteers um, and uh, in uh, technically how to use the actual equipment that I actually bought myself from New York I came back in a, with a suitcase full of high-resolution recorders. Um, and um, the question was um, not only, so we set up a template of how to actually receive the oral testimony, uh, what metadata should be inserted in it. Um, and we were experimenting with whether this would be with limited time or uh, open-ended, uh, we, we obviously um, uh, went for an open-ended, in other words, no limits of time. Uh, but the main question that we had was what to do with these recordings once they were done. Because we were afraid that if we give them day by day to the National Archives, in, in addition to all the security issues, they will disappear. I know the archives, there's no system. 
um, of indexing, of tagging, of cataloging uh, them. So we had uh, decided to have a secret channel so that we collect these um, testimonies in the morning. We deliver them to, um, uh, we outsource the cataloging to people who would work literally overnight to listen to these recordings one by one and to tag them and to write short descriptions. We would then have a copy ourselves and then hand over the collection, the recordings the following day to the National Archives. So from the start, there is a tension, there's a suspicion between us and the agency, the, the government agency that we're working with. So that was, uh, um, uh, uh, was there from the start. Who are we? As I said, um, this is a committee that I formed. Uh, there was a professor of political science from Cairo University. Uh, there's a, an IT specialist. Uh, there are a couple of historians. There is this member from the National Archives who is the head of the National Archives and then um, an assistant working with him. Um, and an official decree, I mean, ministerial decree was issued uh, naming us as members of this committee. And then we worked with our own volunteers. So we, um, I mean, uh, the question was whether we are part of the movement. Yes, I mean, as far as one can call a revolution a movement at that time. So those IT people and those um, historians and so on, those are people that participated in the revolution, were participating in the revolution as it was unfolding at that time, day by day, and believed in the importance also of documentation and preserving um, an oral history uh, archive of what was happening. This was, frankly, my own decision. It was my own mandate as head of the committee. Um, and uh, uh, and and the, the 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 challenge, of course, was also to find the working relationship. You know, because this is something. It's a very very tense uh, atmosphere for the reasons I mentioned. We are already each one of us is a professional. We have jobs. We're participating in the revolution, which is an enormous pressure on our time and physical, you know, being and integrity. Um, and then this extra burden of meeting once a week and deciding the rules of the game. We spent maybe seven months trying to set down different criteria and measures and rules of how we will go about doing this and, um, and subcommittees being formed and, um, and so on. Um, the question about um, um, you know, camouflaging what we are doing as I mentioned, I mentioned one example, which is how not to give the material immediately upon the, the, the oral history material upon being collected. We wanted to have a way of cataloging it first, of tagging it first in our own archives. Um, so, uh, so as I said, there was tension from the start. I remember a particularly tense conversation with the head of the archives when I was insisting on having uh, uh, a legal language that would bind the National Archives to preserve and protect the anonymity of the witness. 
And this person objected because the legal advisor said, no, we've never done this before. Uh, they either give it or they don't give it. They, they either give a testimony or they don't give a testimony. The National Archives, you know, this is the Egyptian state. The Egyptian state would never really willingly bind itself by uh, legal measures to uh, protect its own citizens. As far as, I mean, that was the, 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 the feeling at that time. So this, the, the conversation was, uh, why are you on, so insisting on this? Uh, why is there no trust? And I told him, because my friends are being arrested, because we cannot have a meeting here without security looking over our shoulders, because people cannot really, those, by the way, the way we collected these um, oral history uh, testimonies, um, initially we wanted to do so on the premises of the National Archives, the security uh, objected because they saw this first meeting with the, uh, with the volunteers and they panicked with the number of people coming in. So I went to the Minister of Culture and I said, can we use the public libraries? There are many public libraries in Cairo. And we said, we will go and collect the testimonies there. Um, so, uh, so that was uh, also one way we were you know, spreading around all of this was based on this inherent feeling of suspicion and tension, uh, ultimately between the security agencies inside the premises, looking over our shoulders on what we are doing and being very suspicious of this whole process. Um, there was no real way of hiding. I mean, this is why I'm saying there was an inherent contradiction. We were officially appointed by the Minister of Culture, but the real powers behind the throne, so to speak, in Egypt, our security agencies. Security agencies control the National Archives till today. Today is very clear. Uh, today, the Minister of Culture, today, every ministry is ruled by an army officer and security agencies in a way that brings to mind the way the British used to control Egypt. Egypt was supposedly a constitutional monarchy with an independent government, but within each ministry, there was so-called a British advisor who stands behind the minister telling him what to do. Now we don't have British advisors, we have police, and sorry, we have army officers. So in the period I'm talking about, it wasn't yet army officers, but it was different agencies, security agencies, especially Amnid um, Dawla, which is part of the Ministry of Interior. Can I imagine other archives? Of course, we knew from the start that there were many, many initiatives on the ground. In Tahrir, there were people collecting videos and collecting testimonies. This was a, a revolutionary act. It was happening all the time. There are many, many depositors. We knew about that. Uh, and I thought the more the merrier, the more um, I mean, this is this is part of what we're doing. Eventually, which is what is happening now the various consolidated attempts that is happening now in exile, and I know of more than one project, is using these uh, collections that were gathered by different, uh, by different volunteers, by different you know, citizen groups. Um, and, and they do exist, and some of them have gone online now, and they, they, uh, they exist. The last point is about Tunisia, which is a wonderful question. Um, from the start, we uh, decided that 
we do not we did not have in Egypt a, a truth and dignity or truth and reconciliation committee. We didn't have anything like this. Um, and uh, we were then um, not setting this very, very high bar of credibility of what we were collecting. Uh, in other words, we are not doing what the Syrians, for, for example, now are doing, which is to collect material that would stand the test of court, would be admitted as um, legal evidence in a, uh, in a court of law. Um, this was not the purpose of what we were doing. We were collecting whatever people said. Um, and uh, we were not double checking the veracity of what they were saying. We were trying to be as clear as possible and transparent as possible in terms of the metadata we were putting when this uh, testimony was given, the identity of the person if they so wish to be declared, the date of the testimony, its place, and um, our purpose in tagging is to link the events that we were listening or the personalities, ultimately with the purpose of having a timeline and a website that connects individuals with, uh, but, but also this was very important to notice. We in Egypt have a very bad history with attempts to document revolutions. Hosni Mubarak, believe it or not, was ahead of a documenting revolution attempt he was appointed by, when he was a vice president, by the president at that time, Sadat, in 1976, to head a committee to document the 1952 revolution. The aim of that committee was to come up with an official narrative of what happened in 52. Of course, we now know that what was happening was to, um, uh, to uh, uh, paint the Nasser regime in very bad, light. Uh, so we decided from the start, A, we're not actually going to issue a, a, a report. There's no, there's not going to be an official narrative. This is an open resource for people later on to make what they can make out of what we're gathering. And second, this is not a legal resource. This is not an attempt to, um, to bring legal cases against um, police officers or government officials um, and to make it possible for victims of police brutality, for example, to have their day in court. I would end just by saying that nevertheless, we were very clear that all of this, and this is something that um, Dale touched upon uh, towards the end of his presentation about the importance of all of this archival archiving material on accountability. Um, my purpose is to constantly, uh, in all my work, is constantly to bring forward the idea that um, access to the archives, first of all, acquisition and then access to the archives, uh, is a very important human right. It's a very important source for uh, empowering people democratically. Why? Because ultimately it makes the incumbent in power aware that there will be accountability, even if it's not legal, even if it's historical, 100 years down the line, 
whatever the person in power does, even behind closed doors, will become accessible. Uh, so we were very aware of the legal political ramifications of this, but that was not the prime target, was not put front and center of our uh, project. Our project was a source for social history for subsequent generations. That was the perp, that was the mandate that we had. Uh, thank you, Khaled, Dale, and uh, Dale, and then we'll take, so we'll uh, stay for another 15 minutes and then we take uh, um, another round of questions and then um, uh, if you just answer briefly, because I know that Dale has <laughs> Yeah, I'll try to be uh, brief. Um, there's 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 a, quite a few questions and I'm 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 not sure that I caught every single one of them but I'll try I think the 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 one question about the when was the archive made uh, was it after during and otherwise so it was all of those things so uh, just a quick little history I before um, in the 1990s I was a full time uh, uh, activist as well as uh, official of the South African Communist Party before I was expelled um, for trying to be a communist by the way. Uh, but um, yeah, I, I, and and one of the things that I just astounded me of an organization that had been established in 1921 was that there was no archive in the entire South African Communist Party. And I set about trying to do that. Um, and what I mentioned at the beginning was, is that in the, I think the history of organizations, political organizations, there doesn't seem to be any kind of real practice of collecting. So I, from the right from the beginning, when we started, I was a co-founder of the Anti-Privatization Forum. We started collecting materials and it was everything. So you name it, it was collected. It was filed. It was uh, put put aside. So the, the archive was a living archive. As the organization for over 12 years uh, uh, in, in, in its heyday. Uh, and, and then, of course, what happened was the opportunity to actually try to then start putting that archive together and then doing the interviews came as a result of um, <clears throat> some of the, uh, how should we say, not total dissolution of the APF, but certainly when it began to enter into some serious challenges and problems, a lot of the comrades and a lot of the activists, and this was a collective discussion that took place within the APF, decided that it was a good time. I remember mooting the idea and saying to everybody in an open assembly, why don't we put together an archive now? Why don't we do this? And we have a collective process of doing that. And everyone agreed that this was a good time to do it. Otherwise, there might be the possibility of missing and not having that opportunity. And we already, by the way, missed a lot of opportunities for people. We had, I would say in those 10 years, there was at least personally, I know of our membership and leadership, at least 10 to 15 leaders who passed away and died, uh, whether that was from natural or other causes. So. Um, it was a, it was a, it was an ongoing archive. It was something that happened uh, from the beginning all the way to the end, and then obviously in the in the, in the more immediate post sort of APF period as well when it was put together. Masakiso, um, uh, your 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 question around academic materials and aspects um, elements. Yes, it was incredibly frustrating, by the way, to read some of these academic uh, uh, dissertations because typical of some academics, 
they had parachuted. Basically what they had done was they had come into to South Africa for about a two week period. Uh, they had selectively talked to a few individuals and oftentimes not even people that were part of the APF. They collected a few materials and other things and had gone back and written a piece, uh, which was, uh, you know, fairly, uh, I would say a lot of it was uninformed. A lot of it had nothing really to do with what was going on. It was pre, a lot of it was preconceived notions about social movement theory and what social movements should be and what revolutionary organizations should be and people's own experiences of the anti-apartheid movement and making comparisons to this 1970s and 80s versus the post 19 and how disappointed they would in the lack of uh, you know uh, success should we say or more radical politics that and and that was some of it others of it uh, there were many and some academics and that had come in and spent a lot of time on the ground with the movements doing proper grounded research so it was a combination of those things but i would say that in in many cases there is this tendency, which is not specific, obviously, to, to any particular country or movement or otherwise. It's a global phenomenon of uh, this, this sort of surface analysis and, and uh, trying to fit an example into pre-existing theory and into pre-existing ideological constructions about what it is that you want to see as opposed to what actually there is to see and what is actually going on. And sometimes it's very frustrating and when you go to an international conference and you hear somebody talking about struggles about that are happening in South Africa, you're like, that's not exactly how it's experienced at all if you were on the ground. That's not how things were. Uh, and yet this is what is then reproduced in journals. It's what reproduces in, in, in conference papers. It's what get reproduced as the sort of dominant discourse about the understanding of struggle in this case in post-1994 South Africa. So I think it is a challenging sector. And then finally, uh, Gian's your, your, your very important question about the, the, the Tunisian experience and, and whether or not these, oral, uh, these histories and archives can serve justice. My direct response is absolutely, but, it, but a particular kind of justice. So oftentimes I, I think what it seems to me with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission here and many others, there's an individualized justice. It's about individuals and stories and, oh, this happened to me and I would like justice for me and my family, as opposed to collective justice, as opposed to social justice, as opposed to gender justice, as opposed to a range of different more social and political economic uh, larger picture things. If you look at what happened to the communities in that were part of the APF, the violence, not necessarily in the numbers of people that were killed, although there were many people that were arrested and spent time in jail and that, whose lives were ruined as a result of the repression of the authorities. And those stories can be told and there's certainly the archive could be used, I think in the context of that, hopefully maybe to, to get certain justices for certain individuals, but more collectively, the collective violence of the communities that is ongoing, to me, the archive can serve, can serve as a much bigger part of a collective memory and a history that can be part of a more radical politics, a more just politics that begins to begin to address the real issues to create these injustices on the ground. Because if we don't have those counter stories, if we don't have those counter narratives, if we don't have those counter experiences, then it's gonna be much harder to achieve that kind of justice. Thank you. Um, thank you. Um, so Noor and Sadia. Sadia. I just okay. also, uh, 
I just saw someone, uh, Abdul Hamid, I think, who shared the um, the website for um, 858. So this is a, to answer one of the questions. It's an archive, a video archive created by the Muslim Collective uh, that documented for a lot of events uh, during uh, the Egyptian Revolution. And actually our uh, South African colleagues, you have received like two years ago, if you remember more, at the Constitutional Hill, uh, Sharif Abdul Kudus, who introduced this project. And the 858 is the number of hours of video that they have collected on the different events. And I really invite everyone to go see this website because it's, it's really amazing. Great. Uh, thanks, Shama. I, I have two, uh, you know, uh, quick questions, and they uh, sort of directed at uh, both Khaled and uh, and Dale. Um, it's it's about the you know when, uh, when we met in uh, earlier this year. Yeah, I, I'm hearing an echo, so I don't know whether it's affecting everyone. Uh, one of the uh, questions that we that we uh, confronted uh, was uh, the fear that people have about archives, um, and so I wonder whether you know if both of you could uh, address the question um, uh, to the extent uh, of whether people from whom you collected material. Uh, including oral testimonies in the case of the anti-privatization forum, and I imagine uh, also of the uh, of the uprising uh, in Egypt. Because. Uh, you know, there was much greater uh, repression in Egypt, and of course that happened also uh, in the case of the APF, and perhaps more so in, in the later period. So I'm, I'm, I'm interested in how you approach that question uh, in the creation of an archive. Secondly, and this uh, perhaps relates, uh, Dale, uh, you know, more to the APF archive, which as, we, as, as, as we've said, is in this uh, context uh, potentially the uh, the story of success is the extent to which uh, the archive could be used, and maybe you have examples from the APF uh, in building new movements, uh, so that the archive, on the one hand, is not just a passive, uh, uh, you know, set of materials that may be used by academics for their research, but how could the archive be used, both in its constitution and then also at the end of the process? To continue building movements uh, so that current movements, for example, could use the material in order to learn the lessons of the APF, both in terms of struggle, but also in terms of creating uh, new archives. So it's about the activist archive, uh, not only about the movement, but in continually building new movements. Thanks very much. Uh, there, there was another question. Hi. Hi, everybody. Thank you very much, Khalid and Dale, for this. Um, 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 actually, your presentation in some ways like just raises questions, a lot of questions, you know. Um, to, still in the comparative way, I was thinking about Algeria as um, in 1988, we had like a very important revolution, actually, you know, that changed it the political 
structure of the country and um but we don't have testimonies we don't have you know we have like some writing from here and there more than a decade before um in 1980 you know um 81 we had uh, also some mini revolution within the berber region but we don't have also a lot of written material about the memory or the popular memory of um of um, this uh, uprising or popular uprising within the post-colonial Algeria. And um, and it's not, of course, it's not a case just common to Algeria, but to a lot of uh, post-colonial um, countries of, you know, especially I'm talking mainly of the Arab space. So my question is, because uh, Khaled, you talk about um, um, uh, a failed experience, which, um, I mean, I can understand what you mean, but um, I don't, I don't see the word fail. I see it as an experience that can be taken, you know. But the thing, what you showed, I, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, that um, um, you cannot combine within security, the security regime, right? Or also, the, my main question, even with the South African experience, um, is at the end the project of having a popular archive, archive or people's archive, right? isn't idealistic? Should we find maybe other ways? Um, like I would be interested into uh, having like uh, one website to have to collect different experiences from Egypt, what you did in Egypt, from South Africa, Tunisia, et cetera. It will be as a model for people or the next, as you said, the next generation that can, you know, they can take it as model. I don't think my question is uh, clear, but um, because I, I don't, um, um, yeah, is the project idealistic at the end, right? Or just should we be trained to keep the memory of the one who are making this revolution and then leave the time uh, to do the work? And just to finish with that, I, I read two years ago a book about the archives of um, Vaso Ghetto, you know, and it was run by communist historian. So they understood that they didn't have any chance to survive. So they collected everything, everything, drawings, uh, everything that, you know, they, they thought it's important to leave as, as a trace. They put everything in big containers, they buried them and they found them after the war, you know, and they tried to collect as much as they could and they made it. And they all that, like this people's history of the Vasu ghetto got into a museum, you know? So I think that this could be taken also as a model or it's not the same situation, of course, but uh, the idea on how to um, think about the future and keep a trace and a method of work for the future generation. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, Dale, I think you should start because I know that you have to leave in less than five minutes. Yes, sorry. Um, okay, thank you. I'll try to be uh, brief. There's there's so much to talk about and, and, and many questions. Um, uh, Noor, yeah, listen, I mean, we did, you know, we had uh, two ways of dealing with that in terms of, of people's idea about archives or skepticism or how they thought about it. Uh, some people, it was interesting because we offered obviously anonymity for those who might uh, not want to, to have their names um, uh, you know, revealed. And we talked about whether or not people were comfortable 
uh, with with talking about these things and otherwise, and gave people the opportunities to to not uh, participate. It was it wasn't uh, something that that was uh, sort of organizationally enforced at all. It was just encouraged if if comrades wanted to do that. But I think the main concern that was expressed in, in that came out was access, um, and this is what you talk about in the second. Second, the, the second part, the extent to which the archive can be used, um, you know, to build new struggles, new organizations can be made use of. And this is the challenge. Um, and I think in many cases, I, I, we're fortunate in the, in, the, in the sense that the APF had many, many different kinds of, of uh, uh, activists and intellectuals that uh, went on through the APF and otherwise to, uh, to inhabit many different spaces, some in academia, some in government. Uh, some in other civil society organizations, and many of them have used these materials. Many of them have made use of them and have taken. So that's one way in which I think both some of the ideas, experiences, and others, uh, even if limited, can be made use of. I think the the challenge, as you well know, and and that I think is not again unique to South Africa, is that organizations and other movements tend to operate largely in silos. And so we, we, it's not just about making the access arc, uh, the archive accessible. It's about people's political and organizational consciousness in terms of the way you build an organization to incorporate other experiences, to incorporate other histories, to basically learn from them. This used to be one of the strengths of the anti-apartheid struggle to a certain extent, and certainly unions and workers in looking elsewhere, internationally and otherwise. And I think we've lost a lot of that, and particularly in South Africa. Uh, so it is an ongoing challenge, but it's one that I think uh, it's, I, I know in my work that we do in Ilrig and others where we have used the archive and made use of trying to allow the archive for people to open and share their own experiences and not just talk about the APF, but talk about their own and begin to archive their own struggles, their own oral histories and others uh, at the same time so that it encourages the same and encourages the telling of stories. And, and the collection of those, even though it's a difficult process. And then uh, Sadia, your, your, your question regards to whether or not this is idealistic. Well, in some, in the philosophical answer would be absolutely there, it's idealistic. Um, yes, uh, in a good way, uh, but I understand, I think I know what you're, you're trying to get at, which um, in some ways, uh, I think that at least in the South African context, I can speak of, I, I, I can't, I think, uh, speak for others, in this, in this way is that we're almost at the baby stages uh, in the context of, of this archival journey, uh, uh, particularly in the post-1994 period. I think there still is a obsession and understandably so with the pre-1994 histories and the pre-1994 anti-apartheid and the apartheid state. And there's a, in some ways a, a, a bifurcation, an unwillingness to almost think that the post-1994 period is somehow fundamentally different and therefore needs to be thought of and, and recorded differently, which I would disagree with. So in that sense, there's an ideal of trying to have a continuity of, of, that, of that archival history, as well as that storytelling and, and, and collection process, but at the same time to make it very practical uh, in ongoing in a lived archive. And I think that's, that's the real challenge as, as Nora was pointing out. So I know that that's not a probably satisfactory answer but I'm hoping it, it, it speaks to a certain one. And then Ala, your, your, your uh, point in the chat about the, the parallels between 
the uh, you're asking, it says, what about the Palestinian issue and how can we compare what's going on in Palestine and what happened in South Africa? Um, well, clearly um, the parallels are, are very, very close in the context of, of that. And I think that um, I can't speak uh, for them, but I'm part of, and in the context of the larger, the BDS movement here and the, and the, the Palestinian solidarity movement, uh, in the context of trying to make those comparisons and, and to make comparisons with the history and the storytelling so that people understand that what is happening in Israel right now and what is happening in Palestine is not something that is uh, divorced from that history itself, but in fact is reflecting it in the most directive ways. And I think that's a very, very important ongoing work. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dean. Uh, Okay, I know that we're running out of time, so I'll try and combine my answer to both questions together um, uh, about the romanticization of it, uh, of the archives, whether it is an idealistic uh, project, um, but also the suspicion of the archive. Just uh, some free uh, reflections here. Um, I think from my own experience, um, you're absolutely right, no, there is a um, a suspicion about archives, I mean, suspicion, confusion. The word archive in Egypt, archif, archif is, um, is a dreaded place. It's not a feared place. It's a dreaded place in any Egyptian government agency. It is usually in the basement. It is uh, stacked with very unorganized uh, documents, but it is there that you have supposedly a piece of paper that will uh, solve some bureaucratic hurdle that you have with the state. So you go to the archive in order to clear up. And usually there are all kinds of stereotypical um, images of the uh, employee in charge of an archive. Um, what we were um, uh, trying to do is to, um, um, and all of my work, um, academic as well as activist with regards to memory, archive, um, uh, popular memory and so on, um, it starts with this understanding or misunderstanding of what the archive is. Um, the main challenge is deeper though. The main challenge is in our collective memory of the past and of our alienation from our past. We have, not only in Egypt, throughout the uh, Arab world, we have a national uh, educational curricula, the aim of which is to posit the state as prior to individuals, prior to citizens. So we have this omnipotent, especially in Egypt, because the Egyptian state is a powerful player. Uh, and I know, and of course they, then they say it is, a state that was founded with the ancient Egyptians, with the pyramids. When, for, of course, our historical work showed that the Egyptian state is no more than 200 years old. The purpose of this grand narrative is to diminish us, to wipe us out of the picture as citizens, as men and women who live in our countries and who make history. So, uh, my own history writing is to bring back people and to say the nationalists' narratives, the national narratives of our history are very subversive, I mean, very dangerous, and they have to be subverted. 
they have to be subverted to bring us back to center for back who uh, that is the people we need to see the people rather than the king rather than the pharaoh rather than the church rather than the mosque uh, and uh, and that is not easy but it it is immediately picked upon when when and that was the purpose of this archival project of this oral testimony project is to say here we have something you are witnessing with your own eyes this is something this is a historical event the authors of which are definitely not the state the authors of which are you so the call is for you to come and literally write history and in the process, may people realize that they are actually making history. Um, and and uh, the, the people who came are self-selecting people. The, the people who came and answered our call are people who somehow believed this or somehow did this and hence they believed it. Um, and, and that is where, in, in a sense, the suspicion is broken. Uh, because they, uh, they have already done something with their bodies and they want to translate it in an oral testimony. Uh, so they have already crossed these lines and they have somehow proven to themselves that they are the authors of their own history. They are the makers. They, 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 they literally made uh, history. Um, I think Satya's uh, point is, is very well taken. Um, I mean, I, I consider it to be a failure. It doesn't mean that it's the end of the story. As I said, there's many, many initiatives. And for me, this is a beginning of a long process of change in the Middle East. We are not really, uh, as a historian, I don't see what is happening as the end. It's an end of a chapter. But the revolutionary spirit is somewhere there, uh, the need to change. And these regimes are untenable. And I, I believe that things will, will change, not tomorrow, not today, not next year. Um, uh, but, and I, I believe what you're suggesting, Sadia, of making a non-national archive, of collecting the archives from Algeria to Syria, to South Africa, to Egypt, and say, these are what moments of change in which citizens take the initiative look like and to document them. And I think I, ha I have to admit, I haven't thought about it this way uh, because I'm very much, as I tried to show, I'm very much, despite everything, a product of the National Archives of Egypt. I was trained there. Um, and that is uh, a problem that I have. I have to admit, I have my own limitations uh, from my experience, um, and I think I need to be pushed out of my comfort zone to imagine some other kinds of histories that are not national histories, some other kinds of archival um, uh, uh, practices that are not bound to the nation state. So I, I think this is a very valuable advice to, to, to make these connections uh, of different uh, revolutionary spirits and different revolutionary experiences and to see how we can write one archive about them to make them have a conversation with with them in one one project if i understood your suggestion uh, uh, correctly so thank you for it thank you so much Helen.
Thank you all. Uh, Noor, do, do you want to say something to end? Uh, uh, not, not really, but if I, if I have to, uh, let me then say, I think this was a really uh, fantastic conversation. Uh, I know Dale has left us, but uh, thanks to Khaled and Dale for raising uh, a set of fascinating questions. And I think that uh, it's, uh, it's been extremely fortunate to be able to inaugurate the seminar series with those two inputs. Uh, uh, which uh, have generated many, many questions. And as Khaled has said, uh, we're not attempting to answer all of the questions in, uh, in one experience or in one seminar. But this is an ongoing conversation which we're going to have to undertake collectively and draw our different experiences, experiences together over time uh, in order to inform what we're doing and what we're writing and how we research, what we research and with what various objectives. So. Uh, I found it very, very exciting and illuminating. Thanks. Um, thank, thanks again, Khalid. Uh, thanks, everyone. Uh, just no, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I learned a lot from it, and thanks for the questions. And I look forward to further sessions in the future. Wonderful. Thank you very much, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Thank you.